Anyway, so in an attempt to kind of stick to 10-15 minutes, I'm just going to briefly cover four issues. Can you hear me at the back okay? Um, so first of all, I want to cover um, why did we produce this book? Um, what were the kind of ideas and rationale behind it? Because all of the contributors uh, were involved right from the start, and a lot of you here actually were involved in workshops discussing the concepts and themes uh, behind the book. So the discussions really started in, in 2013, uh, when uh, there was a flood of books uh, and newspaper articles about 20 years of, of the Oslo Peace Accords um, between Israel and the PLO. And, you know, pretty much all of these publications were focused on why and how the two-state solution had failed um, or had so far not succeeded, um, how, um, how the Palestinians were no closer to self-determination. Um, now, for me, reading all of these, and my first year being here permanently in Jerusalem, a lot of these assessments were really, really important and useful. But what I was interested in was something else. I really wanted to know how the peace had um, shaped, and I say peace in inverted commas, and the interim framework that was created under Oslo, how that actually shaped the lives of the different communities of people involved uh, from the river to the sea, uh, and what had been their coping strategies and political responses to I, I add here, though I, I did include, there is a chapter about Palestinian refugees specifically focused on, on uh, Jordan, because I think intellectually and politically to exclude them would be wrong. So because I wanted to kind of take this more anthropological uh, focus, I knew I needed to work with expert scholars who, who really were at the top of their game in terms of understanding the communities and the issues that um, I wanted to explore um, so that we could get a kind of clear and full, and full view of what had been happening in the past uh, 20 to 25 years. Um, and what we saw were a lot of conundrums, contradictions and hypocrisies in the history of the conflict and the peace, in inverted commas, um, in Israel and Palestine. But this, it did bring me to be involved and work with an amazing uh, group of scholars uh, in this book. And while any of you that have been involved in editing a book can be deeply frustrating and you want to throw everybody off the roof in the last six months, but I'm, I'm very proud of, of, of what we achieved. So the, what kind of topics and, and issues are covered in the book? Well, as Taufik um, outlined in the introduction, what we wanted to look at was the kind of combined effects of the ongoing impact of Israeli settler colonial policies and practices, as well as the policies and practices introduced after Oslo and the resulting <coughs> framework, in the kind of framework of, of peace. And what the chapters show is how Israel's expropriation and repression of Palestinians actually accelerated uh, during this uh, purported period of peace. And what, we, what the, each of the chapters show is how different forms of expropriation and control emerged under the cover of this peace framework, and some of which were actually less visible uh, and more stable, I think because the donors were involved and you had Palestinian elites uh, involved. Um, you will hear from, from, we hope, three of the contributors of the book here tonight. Um, as I say, Raja is stuck at Kalandia and he's texting me. His language is getting more and more interesting by the minute. Um, 
So, as, uh, as Tawfiq uh, introduced Raja, Mansour and, and Yoni, there were other contributors to the book as well, and I just want to quickly uh, mention them because they are all excellent uh, scholars as well. Jamil Halal on the politics of the PLO and how the PLO has responded to all of these changes over the last 20-25 years. Uh, Tarek Dana uh, on the Palestinian Authority as a, as a form of um, uh, non-sovereign uh, governance. Uh, Luigi Achille on the lives and politics of Palestinian refugees in Jordan. And Tawfiq Haddad um, on what ha actually has been happening to and in Gaza. So while we initially conceived of the book launch, we weren't actually sure that Tawfiq could be with us tonight. So maybe he'll be able to make some comments uh, from the floor about Gaza, if there's any particular uh, questions that come up about him. Uh, we also had, uh, obviously, um, the, the, the contributors here. And we also had uh, myself on the International uh, Aid Donor Community. And Shireen Hussein, who was previously uh, Deputy Director at the Kenyan Institute, on activists who are campaigning for a different political response uh, and resolution than the one based on separation upon which uh, the Oslo Accords are based. Um, because as we know, this model has not led to political sovereignty for Palestinians, um, but it's only really uh, given a cover for more illegal settlement expansion, uh, and the entrenchment of Israeli rule over the occupied Palestinian territory um, and more repression. We've seen more deaths um, under the last 25 years uh, than we saw before. Um, and now, of course, we have an American president whose team do not think that East Jerusalem is illegally occupied and annexed, nor do they consider uh, Jewish settlements in the West Bank to be illegal. So we're in a pretty much a crunch point. And on Monday, uh, just as an aside, I went to the press conference uh, that marked the deportation of Human Rights Watch Israel-Palestine director uh, Omar Shakur. And at the press conference, I thought what was really interesting was that the Human Rights Watch director, the big cheese kind of cloth, came from New York to, to preside over this press conference. And he stated that we are now living in a one-state reality. Um, that much seems clear. Uh, but what is not clear um, to me and to, to maybe some others here is what we do with this information and conclusion, what is the political strategy going forward and that's, that to me is the big question. Now this will be something I hope that comes out in the Q&A and I'll be interested to hear what you, know, what you uh, think about this. Um, so my chapter, I just want to talk a little bit uh, briefly on my chapter on AIDS and the donor community. Uh, after Oslo. So, my background is I'm a conflict and peace scholar interested in intervention strategies that range from aid intervention right through to, to military uh, intervention and coup d'etat. And I felt that Western donor, uh, what they call peace building, <coughs> the OPT since uh, 1993, was a, was a very interesting case study. Particularly, I was interested in 2006 when there's an attempt to overthrow Hamas and interfere more directly in Palestinian politics than they had been previously, although we know there's a long history of involvement uh, with the CIA, etc. So my research really tried to look since 2006 at um, basically how donor policies and strategies, how they impact on the ground, 
particularly in terms of the form of political economy they were helping to implant in the OPT, how the donors uh, interacted, coexisted and consolidated Israel's strategies and practices of settler colonialism and counterinsurgency, and if they did not, how they did not. Um, thirdly, I was interested in how different um, sets of Palestinian political and economic elites uh, actually dealt with that interaction, whether they were co-opted, whether they adapted to these uh, policies and frameworks, or whether they rejected them and what were the consequences uh, of these rejections and adaptations. And then more and more I was interested in what the Western donors said they were doing here, but what they were actually doing here in this context. Just trying to understand it, oh Jesus, trying to understand it in terms of the global alliances. What, what's that? <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm, uh, nobody's ever said that I'm really quiet, so I'm um, sorry about that. Um, is it okay now? Is it okay? It sounds like it's loud. It's gone better. It's okay. That, is that okay? I hate hearing my own voice. <laughs> it's really loud now. Okay. I'll put my fingers in my ears. Um, so while the other chapters in the book explore the experiences and responses of the different communities, um, you know, both Palestinian and Israeli, uh, to the geographic, economic and political changes that came after the signing of the Oslo Accord, my chapter really focused on the donors and the multilateral involvement because they played a crucial role in creating and sustaining what we currently see today. So I undertook an extensive amount of interviews with high-ranking officials at work the uh, aid agencies and multilateral organisations, and the chapter tries to assess the most important impacts of the past 25 years. Um, it looks at what these donors think of the Oslo framework and the two-state solution now, um, or a couple of years ago, nearly 20 years after the interim period was supposed to end. And what I found, and I'm sure nobody's going to be, this is not rocket science, nobody's going to be surprised here, is that all of these people were acutely aware um, of the problems with the two-state uh, solution and the Oslo framework. Uh, usually after, I, I meet a lot of uh, people that work for the aid agencies, and usually after about six months, they start to look like they've been hit by something, you know, they start to realise what's going on here. After a year, they start to really realise what's going on here. Um, but the problem is, is that as institutions, as agencies, these donors and multilateral agencies are developing no alternative plan. There is no plan B. And that's what my chapter is called, no plan B, because plan A cannot fail. Um, because this is what the donors themselves refer to and the media, no plan B. Um, and this is deeply problematic because in all aid contexts, there's always a plan B. And so if there's no plan B here, this shows that even when the peace process, what process, and the two-state solution, <coughs> two-state solution, appears to be completely dead in the water as it is, um, there's this need, there's this necessity to continue with the facade that is leading somewhere. Um, because it cannot acknowledge to have failed. Yeah? They cannot acknowledge that this has failed. 
So therefore I concluded that by continuing to contribute, justify and uphold the current status quo as exists, the donors and the multilaterals have um, played a, an absolutely crucial role in creating and sustaining the particular type of colonial peace that exists here today. And you will hear from the others about what they concluded in their research. How am I doing for time, Tofik? <laughs> okay, cool. Um, so why did why did I call the book From the River to the Sea, Palestine and Israel in the Shadow of Peace? Well, well, the whole project was kind of conceived of with that title, and most of the contributors refer to the phrase in their chapters. And it's a descriptive term that encompasses uh, both modern-day Israel and inside the Green Line and the occupied Palestinian territory. And it's been used by both Zionists um, in Israel and Palestinian groups to state their claim to the land. But I'm not naive. I know that this term has been heavily criticised, for example, Mark Lamont Hill, who's a professor at um, Temple University in the US, used this phrase last year in November um, at the United Nations and he was heavily attacked. He lost his job as a CNN commentator and there was a lot of pressure on his university to fire him. And my response at the time, the book had just gone into press, I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> especially given that the publisher initially tried to get me to change the title. But I explained that that was impossible to do now because the whole rationale of the book had been based on it and I dug my heels in. And also really this picture that came from the you know, fabulously talented uh, photographer Tanya Hadjuka, which really kind of captured what we were trying to say in the book. Her photo is of school children taking a, a boat trip off the coast of Gaza. And to them, this was an epitomised freedom for them to be able to leave the enclave that's been uh, under a prison sentence since the blockade started. And they're normally prevented from doing this uh, very easy act. Um, and so, just maybe to conclude uh, in a minute, Despite being very proud of the book uh, and the chapters in it, I feel that it is a, a contribution uh, to the debate. Um, neither I nor the other researchers in this book are under any illusions that more research or more words will change the current situation. Um, the promise of peace, as we know, is, is incredibly hollow. Uh, negotiations have been non-existent for years. Sovereign statehood Palestinians has been denied, and the exchanges have become ever, ever more bitter, um, especially under the policy directions of, of Donald Trump. Um, so for all of the contributors to this book, these facts are undeniable. Um, however, these facts are not enough, because there seems to be a broader ideological battle that's going on at the moment. Um, we see this, in, for example, in the UK at present um, about whether it's legitimate to even criticise the state of Israel. So this is a broader, bigger battle. Um, I think people are absolutely aware of what's going on here. I think this place is probably the most studied place in the world. Um, I think in this context what we need is a transformation in international public perception and opinion that in turn will fuel uh, an increase in solidarity actions and movements in support of Palestinian rights.
And I think the only thing that we can do as academics is hope that our wards and our research help in some way to document and analyse the experiences and responses of those people who've been deeply affected by this festering wound that was started by the British and continued uh, by the Israelis. So I'll, I'll leave it off there and I'll pass on to Mansour. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy. It's been a great, great pleasure working with you for the last four years, five years even. And I think we presented the first findings of the project in LSE in London a few years ago, and now we're so pleased to see the book on the table here. It's been a wonderful experience, so thanks very much for being with us here. So I think I was giving the most difficult uh, position uh, to speak about two chapters, uh, two case studies uh, from the book, from uh, the, research, the research I have done for the last uh, few years. And, and I have 15 minutes, I guess, to speak for that. So I'll, I'll do my best uh, to provide a snapshot of uh, two case studies uh, that are based on significant field work in, in East Jerusalem here, occupied East Jerusalem, as well as amongst the Palestinians uh, in Israel. So uh, the first case, obviously, is the Al uh, Quds, the occupied East Jerusalem since Oslo, uh, and the exclusion of East Jerusalem from the Oslo Peace Accords, and what's the implications of that, uh, drawing on what Mandy already has, has, has mentioned on other issues. And the second case, is the Palestinian uh, in Israel and their exclusion also from the Oslo Peace Accords. And I do try to draw some um, comparisons between the two cases and also touch on the um, case of exclusion and what's the implication of exclusion in, in both cases. Is it okay with me? Yeah? Is that okay? I think. I, I hear my voice uh, three times, I guess. <laughs> Yeah? Okay. So I hope it's better now. So uh, I argued uh, for the occupied Palestinian uh, East Jerusalem that the city was excluded from the Oslo Accords, which basically have, have led to the escalation of the Israeli settler colonial policies in the region. Uh, and the exclusion of East Jerusalem from the peace accords basically has led to the uh, the continuation of Donald Trump declaration, uh, and which has basically, for me, uh, has ended Oslo in different ways. Uh, and on the second case of the Palestinians in Israel, I do argue that the exclusion of the Palestinians in Israel from the peace accords has led to de facto something totally different, which has led to the localization of their politics and the the, the Israeli efforts also to um, divide them from the entire conflict. And we, I will. Uh, provide some examples uh, how this has happened and what's the implication for that today. So I'll start with the case of East Jerusalem briefly. So for the East Jerusalemites, according to many of the interviews I have conduct conducted here in East Jerusalem in the Old City and in the Palestinian neighborhoods, uh, Oslo, as, as it was all over, was, was a Palestinian hope for East Jerusalemites in particular that basically uh, uh, Oslo would um, unify them with, uh, with, with their relatives uh, across the borders, also in, in Jordan and in Palestine elsewhere. However, the 
basically the hope of Oslo, according to some of the interviewees here in East Jerusalem, encouraged many of the Palestinians, in fact, to come back to the city, to East Jerusalem, and to try to secure their positions uh, and future. Quickly, we'll see that the Israelis and Palestinians, um, as a result of the exclusion of Oslo, I would argue, has basically opened a, a, a competition between the Israelis and the Palestinians who is going to change the reality on the ground. And I think that's the 25 years of Oslo. Basically, the, 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 there is a, 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 a kind of a control on, on the Palestinian life here in different variables that has escalated uh, since Oslo. Uh, I will give some, uh, some examples of, of how that has happened and what is the implications of, uh, uh, of the escalation of the Israeli sector colonial policies in, in, in East Jerusalem. Uh, and also there's some aspect of critical uh, perspectives on the PLO, a lack of uh, strategy in, in East Jerusalem. So, so that is not only the Israeli escalation process, but also the Palestinian um, lack of um, uh, um, a uh, clear um, uh, strategy for, for the East Jerusalem eyes. So I think one of the, the few examples I have uh, looked at is the, the whole dynamics around the separation without integration. The Israeli policies were, were clear here to try to control more, more ter territory of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem but less of the, the Palestinian population and, and, and this has a clear impact on the silent transfer of the Palestinian communities beyond the border. Uh, beyond the separation wall, uh, and in particular the, the case of Kufar Aqab and Samir Amis and Yuanata and, and the region that has already 140,000 Palestinians today, that their future, I would say, and any kind of significant move, they might lose their, their status in those, in those regions. As, as particular, particularly the house demolitions that has escalated in East Jerusalem since then, and that has led uh, more people to leave uh, the. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the region to beyond, beyond the border, as well as many other examples of, um, uh, of uh, revoking IDs um, I, uh, since, since then. The second important component that we have seen since the, um, uh, the peace agreement that has a, um, a significant implications of East Jerusalem is basically the separation barrier, uh, the separation wall, as well as the isolation of the Palestinian economy in East Jerusalem from the West Bank, which is a significant component of, of, um, uh, of the Palestinian life here. So the separation of the Palestinian economy is clear, and we can see some statistics that around $200 million loses of every year for the Palestinian economy as a result of the separation wall and as a result of pushing more Palestinian uh, merchants to leave the city and to invest in the West Bank uh, in, in Bethlehem as well as Hebron, which basically uh, leaves uh, the Palestinian economy here very, very fragile. Um, the second important component that has um, um, basically characterized East Jerusalem since Oslo is the vacuum of leadership, vacuum of the Palestinian leadership since the closing down of the Orient House, as well as many other Palestinian institutions and organizations that were clo closed down. Um, it says clearly about the Israeli aspiration of uh, sovereignty um, uh, over, over the city. Anything to be, to be done with the PLO, or any relationship with the PLO, and uh, the activity that is related to, to the PLO was basically blocked from happening here in, in, in East Jerusalem. Um, the, the, the best example is basically the, um, uh, the Palestinian government governor of East Jerusalem basically functioned from Aram beyond the separation barrier, which basically 
uh, tells the story of where are the Palestinians in the struggle of, of leadership here. And that's, in fact, despite the uh, Jürgen Holtz uh, agreement and letter uh, uh, that basically protected the Palestinian uh, institutions, organizations, as well as in, in, in the, the, the leadership. Despite that, uh, I think we have seen a significant um, 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 Israeli policies to um, empty the, the city um, from any, um, any Palestinian uh, leadership, which is quite clear. I, I would mention some examples which basically related to the Palestinians in Israel. In this case, uh, that the, the vacuum of Palestinian leadership in the old city, or in East Jerusalem in particular, has uh, basically uh, um, pushed uh, to, um, the Palestinian um, uh, Arab minority from Israel also to, to become a, an important player in East Jerusalem, in particular the Islamic movement, um, as well uh, as the joint list later on. So the emergence of those political actors is basically uh, signifies the lack of uh, Palestinian leadership in, 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 in the city. Uh, some uh, quick examples, what happened since the Trump statement of, East, of Jerusalem as the capital of, uh, of Israel, uh, we have seen the escalation of the, the Israeli policies on the ground on every day, and that basically signifies also the Israeli sovereignty and, uh, ambitions and also closing down a number of important institutions just in the last few few, few days or or few weeks. Television Palestine is an example, uh, as well as the uh, the, the the school um, uh, municipality, the, the, the Oqaf schools in the old city, uh, um, offices that were also blocked, as well as recently Israel has been trying to to provide more legislation to stop the, any function of the UNRWA here, offices, as well as international uh, communities that works here in, in, in Jerusalem. Uh, I think the most interesting aspect is basically to do with education in East Jerusalem. Since Oslo um, uh, in 1993, we have seen more Israeli efforts to um, uh, intervene in the, in the Palestinian curricula in, the, in, in East Jerusalem, in particular in, in relation to uh, the Bagrut um, um, examination. More and more Palestinian schools, in fact, these days uh, teach the Bagrut exams, uh, as well as more and more Palestinian students study in, in Israeli universities. Um, and the Awqaf schools are, are, are basically in hard times. And, and the last the recent example of closing down their offices in the old city signifies the, the, the example of, uh, of basically controlling the education would be the last basically aspect of controlling East Jerusalem, um, I would say. Despite that, we have seen a significant um, movement of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem that is mobilized mostly around the, uh, the, the mosque, Aqsa Mosque, as well as the old city. The Awqaf still plays an important role there, so which is a significant component of the Palestinian leadership is the religious leadership and the mobilization around the, 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 the Aqsa Mosque. I think that's, that's a clear aspect that brings basically the Palestinians in Israel toward that front um, as well. So I'll move quickly to the second part, which is uh, hopefully another uh, um, few minutes, is, is the case of the Palestinians in Israel and the relationship basically between what, what has been going here in East Jerusalem and uh, amongst the Palestinians in Israel. So, um, uh, in relation to the Palestinians of Israel, based on interviews with the political leadership, as well as with political activists and newspapers from the 1990s, 
uh, one of the questions I raised is basically what impact did the Oslo Accord have on the Palestinian minority in Israel? They were excluded, but it has, the exclusion has a lot of implications. And I would um, argue with, with no avenues for expressing their views inside Israel and with no recognition in Oslo, the Palestinian minority responded to the exclusion of their um, uh, status from the Oslo Peace Accord by reconceptualizing their politics campaigning for equal rights as a national indigenous minority. Oslo, in fact, has led to a dual process inside um, the, the communities inside Israel. It has accelerated the localization of their struggle, uh, in particular focusing for, on minority rights and justice within the Israeli system, where while simultaneously it's opened um, the wider support for the Palestinian struggle and also for the two-state solution, which is basically has, has lots of uh, challenges uh, these days, but that's the clear stance from most of the Palestinian Arab parties inside, uh, inside Israel. I think the exclusion from the peace accord is meant to separate the Palestinian Israeli citizens from the wider Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it has been clear, in fact, at that time that the, the Israeli government has made it clear that the, the Palestinian Israeli citizens will not be any part of any peace process with the Arab world, including uh, the, the Palestinian cause. Uh, and, and we can see today the exclusion from the political um, system, in fact, and, and despite they had recommended for, for Gantz to be the Prime Minister, they were not included until now. So the, the exclusion from the peace process and the exclusion that happens today, it makes clear that they are not part of, um, of the, Israeli, um, the, the Israeli game. Uh, but in fact, on the other side, the, the Palestinian Arab minority were also excluded by the, the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO. And in fact, that has led to a lot of frustration, even anger, that despite the, um, the long history of struggle and supporting the Palestinian cause, suddenly the PLO has said, you are not part of the game anymore, and you have to focus on your own rights. And I think that's a, a, a clear message that has been drawn by some of the Palestinian leadership and officials I have interviewed, that the Palestinians in Israel have to deal with their own cause. And I think that's, that's quite clear. And one of the citations from those officials makes clear sense saying it is true that Oslo ignored the Palestinians inside Israel because Oslo for us was a, a compromise and because we were losing, we have pushed the Palestinian minority to focus on their own affairs. And one of the important aspects of, of the implication of Oslo amongst the Palestinians in Israel, basically, you are here, guys, to, to celebrate Oslo. We are not part of Oslo, but you are here to celebrate Oslo. And I think celebrating Oslo with, with, the, with, the, with the Israeli leadership inside Israel was a, was a clear message that Oslo was sold to the Palestinian minority more than the Jewish population. In, in, in Israel. And I think that also has an, an important aspect from the Palestinian side. We have seen the Palestinian leadership, the Palestinian leadership at that time visiting Arab towns, including in the Nakab, and celebrating the achievement of Oslo with the local Palestinian citizens. And, and in particular, the delegations that we have seen in the 1990s from the Palestinians in Israel visiting Ramallah and Gaza to celebrate with the Palestinian leadership. So that's a very interesting component of the whole dynamics between the Palestinian, the PLO, and the Palestinians inside Israel. So in 1995, Itzhak Rabin has visited 
uh, and Rahab, one of the Arab towns in the south, and, and thousands of people basically were, were waiting for him in, uh, uh, to celebrate also in the streets of the Arab, an Arab town. There's lots of other examples uh, on, on, in, on, the, on the north. Um, however, the Oslo also, despite that, has led to the localization of the politics of the Palestinians in Israel, it has also a component of fragmenting the communities. In particular, the Islamic movement inside the Green Lines, inside Israel. The Islamic movement criticism in Oslo was clear on, uh, on Arafat in particular, and ha it has led to a lot of discussions between the, the, the Islamic movement that has led to the split of the Islamic movement to the northern branch and to the southern uh, branch, which, had, which they played a significant component on the Palestinian struggle here in East Jerusalem. Um, so the, the final comment on the, 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 uh, the impact of Oslo and the Palestinian and Israel, I think it's the localization of politics, mainly um, the, the, uh, in the emergence of Palestinian um, uh, Arab parties inside Israel since Oslo, since 1993. Most of the, the, party, the Arab parties inside Israel emerged, emerged basically after Oslo and as a reaction to Oslo because we were excluded by both by Israel and by the Palestinians. Now we have more time to invest in our, uh, our cause. And I think the, the recent example of the joint list in 2015 it tells the whole story of, of Oslo in 1993 that has led to the unification of the local Arab parties and the 2015 joint list is the best example that has led to the localization of the voting habits of the Palestinians in Israel. 80% of the Arab votes, half a million votes, went to the Arab parties. While if we look before Oslo, 1990, before 1993, we can see the majority of the, the votes of the Arab minority went to the Zionist parties, which has, I think this is a, a significant uh, shift in the politics of the Palestinians in Israel since Oslo. And uh, the example of excluding them from the coalition government recently with Gantz, I think it, it provides the best example that you guys will not be part of, uh, of a peace process and also will, you will not be part of um, a, a, a government, despite that you are the third um, power, political power inside, inside the Israeli, the Israeli um, uh, system. And I think, for me, the, the exclusion of, of the, uh, of, from the peace process has also led to the exclusion now in the political process. And I would mention a few things about the joint list, what they say basically about the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And in fact, they have played a powerful card as a third political um, party in, in, inside the Israeli system, basically um, Labeling the whole conflict or their status as Palestinian Israeli citizens with the whole conflict again. So the exclusion in 1993 did not basically put them on the side. Basically, they are very active, and in fact, they told, they told the Gans a few weeks ago uh, if you would like us to be part of the government, but we have a number of important issues that you have to address before we get to the, to, to the unification government, basically. Uh, one of them is basically um, the, um, the uh, end of the Israeli occupation of the West Bank uh, and also the, end, the ending the siege in Gaza, which is a very important component of the politics of the joint list these days and the continued support of the Palestinian cause in different fronts. And I think that's, that's a, a clear message to the Israeli um, uh, government that even if, they, if, even if they will be part of a government, they have lots of uh, uh, aspects to be, to be addressed. And I think the, the last comment I would like to make, uh, um, uh, Tofik, just one minute, is, is basically 
Um, a common program between the PLO and the Palestinians in Israel may have been abandoned since Oslo, but the Palestinians in Israel became the front line for the supporting the Palestinian cause today, and, uh, and they also raised the green line in different ways. Despite being excluded from the peace process and the political process these days in Israel, the Palestinians in Israel remain in the front line of the, uh, the conflict, and they are a very important um, component of, of the final resolution. And I would uh, end with a citation from Ayman Oda, the, the head of the joint list, saying in 2018, the head of the joint list, Ayman Oda says, between the river and the, the Mediterranean, there, there is an equal number of Palestinians and Jews, and nothing else new. Nothing new. That's why the, the crossroad where, where, where we presently find ourselves is clear. Either two states based on 1967 borders, or one apartheid state, or one democratic state in which everyone has the right to vote. There is no other option, and at least this is simple truth has to be uh, stated clearly. I think that's a powerful statement of the Palestinians in Israel, that they are part of the conflict, and they will be. Thank you. Just because for me it's a great uh, opportunity to be with you, especially that one of the things that have happened also since Oslo 1993, and I will speak about it also later on today, that there is almost lack of, of, of contact mm -hmm. between uh, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, and of course I'm not saying this uh, as a sign of, uh, of, of uh, 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 I don't blame, obviously, the Palestinian side for this, but this is one of the consequences of the situation. If uh, before 1993, in the 60s, in the 70s and 80s, Israelis and Palestinians met, and if people in the south of, of, of Israel, in Sderot and Ashkelon, used to do their market in Gaza uh, at that time, today this is unimaginable. So I'm not a romanticist. And I don't see that situation as something that we should go back to. And I obviously see the power relations that existed at the time. Uh, um, but the idea that Israelis and Palestinians do not meet, and Israelis do not see Palestinians, uh, make it also easier for this hawkish discourse in Israel to escalate, as I see it. Many things have happened in the last 25 years, and, uh, or 26 now. Uh, but I would like, because my, my, I write about Israel-Palestine and I write about politics in this region, but my main kind of academic research is about language. And when I look at Arabic language here in the Jewish community, and I'm mostly interested in, in, in uh, insights relating to language, and maybe I will start with three uh, metaphors or three phrases that are used in Hebrew uh, 
which I think can tell us something about the Israeli current discourse. First is a famous expression in Hebrew that is called Hafarat Seder. All of the Jewish Israelis obviously know it. Hafarat Seder means a disruption of the order. Le'afer, to disrupt, to... Can? Yes. Seder is an order. And usually we'll have disruption of order, for example, if there will be a Palestinian will throw stones at a road in the occupied territories, this will be a disruption of the order. If there will be a Palestinian demonstration on the fence in Gaza, this will be obviously a Farad Seder of Palestinians and so on and so forth. If there will be something happening in Esawiyeh against the Israeli police, it will be a disruption of the order. And, and one should look very deeply into this phrase that is called disruption of the order and ask himself, <coughs> that means that in the Israeli Jewish mind, before the stone was thrown, or before the road was blocked, or before the demonstration was made, there was an order. And that order was disrupted by the stone, by the demonstration, by the attack against the soldier, or against the army, or whatever. And that's one of the things that I think are very kind of uh, important to mention about Israeli society, Jewish Israeli society, is many times the uh, lack of context to the situation. The conflict did not start with a Palestinian throwing stone. The conflict did not start with a Palestinian trying to uh, go through the separation, what's so-called illegally. And the conflict did not start with Palestinians demonstrating in the Gaza Strip. The conflict has roots. And I think that one of the ways that Israeli kind of get away with dealing with the, with the background of the conflict is to start the conflict with a stone, or to start the conflict with a, with a uh, attack against the, the, the soldiers. And obviously, I'm, I'm, I'm not supporting violence in any way, but I just think that as part of the Israeli society, we, look, we have to look into the roots of the conflict and do not, not only look at the end of it. Two other metaphors that I think are important, and I use metaphors, maybe some of you know an important book that was written by Johnson and Lakoff, called uh, Metaphors We Live By, and I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a strong thing to, to mention. Uh, they say actually that if, uh, I don't know, if, if, if you are a, a military man if, and you want to win the war, so they say that maybe you have to have control on the sky. That's what, especially what they say. But if you're a politician, you have to have a full control of the language. And metaphor is a very strong uh, uh, way to control the language, because then you can already picture a whole conflict and put it into a picture or into a drawing. So I think, I think the disruption of the order is an important metaphor. I think that Villa in the Jungle, which is maybe the only thing that Benjamin Netanyahu and Ehud Barak agree on, because both of them use the same thing and they so-called represent the right and left wing in Israel. Villa in the Jungle is a very important thing and some of my Israeli and Palestinian colleagues have written more about it and know more about it, but it's a, it's, it, it means quite a lot. It means that we, we understand ourselves as a villa, we understand the region as a jungle. How can a villa be in the jungle? It should be surrounded by cement and so on and so forth. And a third one, which is definitely connected to the uh, 1993 agreement, Oslo, and then later on to Camp David, is a no partner uh, metaphor. No partner that you imagine a person sitting together in a room or outstretching his hand to peace, and uh, there is no partner, nobody on the other side that is willing uh, to listen or that is willing to, to, to discuss and to debate. 
Once you have three very strong metaphors like this, in one canal you're really controlling the Jewish-Israeli discourse in Israel, I think that we can understand quite a lot about the psyche and the, and the grammar of the conflict, as uh, I mentioned in this article. Now about what has happened in the last 26 years, or 20, when the book, the book is for 25 years. So the, I would like to, to shed light on a few processes that have taken place in the Israeli society. The discourse, as one can argue, is more hawkish than before. And uh, we can look also at the government today, in 2019, and it's a different government to the one from 1993, Important to mention the elections in 1992. Today it sounds a bit unreal, and again, I'm not romanticizing it in any way, but just to mention the, the, the real fact. In 1992, in the elections, Labour Party won 44 mandates, and Meretz won 12 uh, mandates. It means that they had together 56 mandates, and they together created the coalition with support from outside of uh, members from uh, the, the Arab parties, mostly from Hadash, from uh, Al Jabra. So first it is different because today the situation is rather different and we know who is the Minister of Justice and who is the Minister of Defense and so on and so forth. And again, I'm not, I, I don't think that the Labour Party is that much of a different than the Likud, but at least it is important to mention that there is a shift to the right. So from the Zionist center, so to speak, to a more Zionist right, uh, uh, to put it another way. However, at the time already, in 1993, we started to have uh, uh, the sounds or, the, or the, 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 the whispers relating to the Palestinian citizens of Israel. Then again, one can argue go back even to the military regime for 48 to 66, because people were saying, how can we give up on lands, Eretz Israeli lands, based on not the 56 mandates in the Knesset, based on non-Jewish voices. It means, so it already tells you again something about this political grammar of Israel, the Palestinian citizens of Israel, the member of the Knesset who sat in the Knesset and voted for the Oslo Agreement, are considered ghosts. They do not exist. The Knesset actually, according to the opposing of the, of, the, of the Oslo Agreement, had only 56 people supporting it, not more. And I think that this is again important because the delegitimization of the Palestinian citizens of Israel has become something that is like the, the, the bread and butter. It's, like, it's, like, it's, a, it's, a, it's a matter of policy, delegitimizing the Palestinians. It's not something that is a consequence of the events. Did the Oslo Agreement fail because of, its, of, of the agreement being lacking? Very likely that the fact that, for example, the agreement said about East Jerusalem, we will speak in a later stage, about the Palestinian state, we will speak in a later stage, about this and about the refugees, we will speak in a later stage, which I think it, it wasn't a very good thing and it wasn't very courageous. Maybe it also wasn't implemented because of the murder of its Rabin in 1995, and maybe it was also never implemented as such. But definitely what we can see, and I think that this is a you know, somewhere in between psychology and politics. In the Jewish-Israeli point of view, and I think that this is important to understand if you would like also to negate it. So it is important to understand one, one's position. And now I speak kind of about the general moderate or the general kind of mainstream Israeli uh, perception. And it goes like this. In 1993, not me speaking now, okay? Don't, uh, 
1993, we gave everything in order to do peace with the Palestinians. We were willing to even to speak with Yasser Arafat, the greatest, and so on and so forth, the, all of the, the bad things that he had done, and so on and so forth. And instead, we got uh, suicide bombers in Jerusalem. In 2000, we didn't give up, and we went all the way to Camp David, and we gave everything possible, even 98% of the West Bank, and Beirut Barak made the best offer ever been made to the Palestinians, so on and so forth. That's, I'm, I'm giving you the, the general picture. And instead, and in return, we got the Intifada al-Aqsa. In 2000, and when is the disengagement? Five. Gaza, 2005, so usually I say four, and then I'm being corrected, so now I didn't. In 2005, we disengaged from Gaza, we ended the occupation in Gaza, there is not one settler and one settlement in Gaza, and in return, we got rockets coming from Gaza. It, it, it plays very well into the three metaphors that I, that I spoke before. It means that there is one side that is really logical and very rational and very peaceful, but on the other side, there is something in between jungle, too non-existent, too vicious, too violent, too... all of the other uh, uh, characteristics or, 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 or slogans that you would like. And I think it is important because the Jewish-Israeli politics or people or, 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 I don't know, administration or government do not feel already or they do not feel anymore that they need to speak about something that involves the word negotiation or peace. Well, peace, it's a... If someone says this, it means he's irrelevant and he should be thrown out of the room. Or finding a settlement to the conflict. Pitaron is not something that people speak about anymore. We speak about managing the conflict. Nihula Sikhsuch, sorry. So there is a shift of paradigm from solving the conflict, even if it was, that, it, it, it was only words, to there, there is no more mentioning of solving that conflict, and instead we speak about. Uh, uh, managing uh, the conflict. Other things that I thought are important to mention, and maybe some of them were already mentioned today. First, you feel that thanks to this paradigm, which I think is false, that Israel wanted to do peace and the, 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 the only Palestinians should be blamed and so on and so forth, never mind. Due to this paradigm, Israelis do not feel that they have any incentive or responsibility for the ongoing conflict. The responsibility is only lying on the Palestinians' side. Secondly, incentive-wise, Israelis are asking themselves, you know, when you look about uh, concessions in land that were made in Israel. So, in 1978, there were concessions in land giving back the Sinai Desert. One can argue it was a lot to do with the 1973 when people realized that it is, there is something there to lose. Later on, uh, in, in South Lebanon, there were many soldiers that died in Lebanon, and Israel felt we don't want to pay this price anymore, and we give back, go back. Maybe the same again with Gaza. Israelis are speaking about the West Bank, or obviously Yehuda Shomron, Judea and Samaria, because even the West Bank is considered to be a super uh, uh, radical, uh, irrelevant, lunatic, leftist uh, uh, conception. And there is no real consent incentive. Why should we not continue on doing what we are currently doing? The U.S. administration, mashallah, supports Israel everywhere. There is no occupation. Okay, there is no occupation according to the U.S. administration. There are no settlements according to the U.S. administration. The UNRWA is a problem. Sometimes you hear the U.S. current administration. It's like hearing Trump 
speaking in, 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 in Israelized English. It's like, it, it, sometimes it does not seem as an independent American voice. It sounds as if there is a, 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 a speech that was translated to English, but with a very, very thick Hebrew-Israeli right-wing uh, accent into it. So I think this is important to mention also that there is no incentive whatsoever to change the policies because there is full support from Americans and so forth, to the extent that sometimes, and again, I don't support it, but sometimes it just happens, that the Israeli IDF, or Shabak, or military intelligence are way more moderate than the Israeli politicians, so-called civil politicians. We saw it with the magnometers in Al-Aqsa, we saw it with the outlawing of the uh, so-called uh, northern fraction of the Islamic uh, movement, in which the military, or Shabak, or military intelligence were saying to the politicians, you must be mad, why do you do it? And I think it has a lot to do with the total disconnection of the Israeli people and Israeli administration from the situation on the ground. Also being drunk with power, one can do whatever it wants. Also with the emptying of the Israeli vocabulary of things that were not part of the vocabulary before, but today do not exist whatsoever. There is no siege on Gaza. There is no occupation in the, in the West Bank. Obviously, there is no occupation in East Jerusalem. There are no settlements. And there are also no Mahsomim. Instead of Mahsomim, you have Ma'avarim. Okay? The checkpoints have been privatized. Now you have Ma'avarim. You don't have Itnachluyot, you have Hit Yashbuyot. Okay? There are no settlements. You don't have West Bank, definitely not occupied territories. You have either Shtachim or Yudav and so on and so forth. You, you have cities in the occupied territories, Israeli cities, in, as part of the map. In Israel Ayom, in Yediot Achronot, there is an internalization of the so-called the settler uh, vocabulary into uh, uh, Israel. I think that all in all, for us it is important to understand, uh, before we go into kind of big politics, okay? Yes, before we, we speak about big politics, or before even we speak about, I don't know, great uh, 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 speeches of this leader or the other, it is important to go into the political grammar of the Israeli politics. And I think the Israeli politics, current political grammar, is first total delegitimization of the Palestinian citizens of Israel. There are, you have the, the Arabs are uh, driving to the ballots of Prime Minister Netanyahu, but you have Yair Lapid, I'm not going to create a coalition with the Zuabis. Imagine someone in Britain saying, I'm not going to create a coalition with the Cohens or with the Levies. What would have happened then? And also you have uh, Benny Gantz, the great uh, triumphant of the so-called Israeli center, who have said, I am going to create coalition with any Jewish voice in the Israeli uh, Knesset. Which means that from the very beginning, there is no uh, further kind of uh, civilization from the word citizen. Mm -hmm. So there is not more Izoach. How do you say Izoach? Yeah. Uh, like a citizen-oriented discourse, but the very opposite. Palestinians are not considered part and parcel of, of Israeli society, Israeli, Israeli citizenship. It has made Israeli politics more and more hawkish, and I think that the current voices are very clear. And you just need to go at the latest uh, expressions of the Israeli uh, 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 ministers. And all in all, I think that looking at the political grammar can tell us quite a lot about also the political horizon, which is currently very much uh, shortened.
the panelists. Uh, unfortunately, it seems that Raja uh, Khadi will not be able to make it tonight because of the, it's, it's simply too late for him to be able to make it out here. Uh, I was considering giving comments on the issue of Gaza and how Gaza specifically fits in the last 25 years because, to be frank, we do, the lacking from the panel uh, is, is what happened in, in West Bank and in OPT 67, basically, excluding, of course, East Jerusalem, which is a very particular case study. Uh, but giving Gaza would only give the particularities of the Gaza case study. But the point being, uh, I will be up on the panel to be able to maybe uh, give some contributions uh, on that level, but I, I won't take up time from the panel right now. Uh, but I do think it's important that that's part of the discussion, so feel free to have those questions uh, raised if you'd like. 